Turn to Jude in your Bibles, please. And what a beautiful thing to sing of the deep, deep love of our Savior. That's good. There we go. All right. We're going to read the entire book of Jude. At this point, be glad I didn't choose Isaiah. Um, here's what the Bible says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, uh, uh, sorry, to write appealing to you uh, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept, uh, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And... Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, your word is good and we need it. And our prayer is that this morning we will study it faithfully, that we will hear what you would challenge us to, help us to indeed contend for the faith and keep ourselves in the love of Christ for your glory, for our joy, we ask it all. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You can be seated, by the way. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You guys know that verse, right? And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Paul said, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And we say, Amen. Those sound good, right? Y'all want to be peacemakers? Y'all want to avoid conflict? You want to not fight about dumb stuff? So, okay. One of you says yes and the rest of you are not sure. You do want to fight about dumb stuff? No, okay. We don't want to fight about dumb stuff. A lot of folks hate the idea of fighting and conflict and we read verses like the ones that I just read to you there and we sit back and we smile and we say, let's just all get along. Jesus wants us to be peacemakers. Paul condemns divisions among us. He condemns arguments about the law. So let's get rid of fighting about stuff like theologies and doctrines and let's just love, 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 love each other. But there is another side to this issue. Let me give you some more words of Jesus. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In Revelation 2, 6, Jesus said, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Or in Revelation 2, 14 to 16, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Or the same Paul who talked about us not dividing over dumb things says in Galatians 1, 6-9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, Contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So clearly, folks, there's something worth fighting for. And we cannot just accept everything everyone spouts out, teaches. We have to be willing to fight for some things. To stand up and to refuse to go along with falsehood. And that is what the book of Jude is all about. Let's take a look at this book. Today, my desire is that you will understand first that we must fight for the faith. We must fight for the faith. And secondly, today, I hope that you will see that there are some really good reasons why we must fight for the faith. And we'll share with, those, with you several of those this morning. Then next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about what is this faith that we fight for and how we go about the process of fighting for the faith and how this impacts us individually and as a church. So, let's get started. You're looking at Jude in your Bible. You're ready to take notes, those of you who are note-takey types, right? Several points, just be ready to write them down and we'll get there, okay? Verses 1 and 2. He calls himself Jude. I want to go ahead and out Ed Romero this week for when I told him I was preaching Jude. He said, hey. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> Blame Ed. 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. By the way, that word servant is slave. It's a beautiful word here. Servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So here we go. It's the introduction to a New Testament book. And we said that the author is a guy named Jude. Now, did you all know that Jude is a nickname? It's a short form of, get this, the name Judas. Jesus had a half-brother named Judas. How fun's that, by the way? I have enough trouble with my family as it is. Jude is a short form of the name Judas. And this is, he calls himself the brother of James. Nobody knows why he doesn't just call himself the brother of Jesus. Maybe he's being humble. Maybe he's pointing out the fact that his earthly relationship to Jesus when Jesus was on the earth didn't go as well as he would have liked it to be. But he says he's the brother of James. That is the James who was the brother of Jesus. That I wrote the book of James that was the leader of the early church in so many ways. This Jude is Judas who was called one of Jesus' half-brothers that you can see in Matthew 13.55 listed. Now, Jude is writing to a group of believers. We don't know where they are. We don't exactly know who they are. But he calls them three things. And by the way, as as we read Jude, you're going to notice Jude loves to do things in threes. He calls them, get this, called, beloved, and kept. Now, think about that for a second, because that shows you the work of God in their salvation from eternity past, through the present, through eternity future. How beautiful it is for us to recognize that if we are believers here today, those terms apply to us too. Just like Jude called the people he was writing to, the called, beloved, and kept. If you are here with your faith fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, you are the called, you are the beloved, and you are the kept. You were called by God. If you weren't called by God, you wouldn't be saved. Simple enough? Not one of us called ourselves to the Lord. The Lord spoke to our dead hearts, woke us up, and brought us to Himself. And he has called us to himself from eternity past. Also, though, we're called beloved by God, beloved in God. And God has proved his love for us eternally by what he did in Jesus Christ on the cross. And God loves you right now. And if you're in Christ, let me tell you again, there's nothing you could do to make God love you more. And the beauty is in Christ, there's nothing you could do to make him love you less. And we are kept. Because we will be kept by our God, by God's power, by God's goodness, by Christ's righteousness, by Christ's worth, by Christ's perfection. We will be kept by God in faith for eternity. And so we can breathe easy and say, God, you get the credit for my salvation from past through the present through the future. Nobody can snatch us from the hand of our God. Nobody can pull us from the family of our Savior. And then Jude blesses the people with mercy, peace, and love, which is a pretty simple salutation. Nice greetings, and we can talk about those, but we're going to look at something like it here in a few weeks. So right now we're not going to say that much more about it other than that that is here. And so now, get ready, because Jude, once he said hello, he's about to tell the people why he's writing this letter, and we see it in verse 3. So look at Jude 3, please. And by the way, your first point for those of you, this is where we learn that God calls us to fight for the faith. And so if you're writing points, verse 3 is where we say fight for the faith. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude tells his audience, guys, originally, when I was going to write you a letter, I wanted to write you about our common salvation. That sounds like a nice letter. Wouldn't you like to have somebody write you a letter? Let's just write a letter talking about how encouraging and wonderful it is that we're all saved. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? 
Don't you love hearing somebody share their testimony and tell you about how God brought them to grace and, and how much they look forward to the glory of God uh, as Christ returns, as we see God face to face in heaven, all the things that, that go with that. Those are good things, right? But here, Jude says, I wanted to write to you like that. But there's a need that crept in that changed Jude's mind. He couldn't just write about the joys of salvation in Christ. Instead, Jude had to write to these people to urge them to contend for the faith. Now, the word there that says contend is from the Greek word that means to strive in competition or to battle. It's where we get the English word agony or agonize. And the picture here is of an athlete giving his all in the ring or on the track to defeat his opponents and to win the competition. And Jude wants you and he wants me to contend earnestly, to fight hard for the faith. What faith are we talking about? It's the faith that was once and for all time handed down to the saints. What is that? That's the gospel. Well, you and I are supposed to do something that calls us to fight for the faith. Because there is only one true Christian faith. There's only one true Christian gospel. And Jude wants the people of this church and churches all across the world to fight for the sake of that gospel. You know, in life, there are basically three kinds of theology people have. Some folks have good theology. Some folks have bad theology. Some folks think they have no theology. Good theology clings to the once and for all time faith of the gospel. Bad theology twists that faith, distorts that faith, and leads to destruction. And no theology, which is a favorite of many in the modern church, ignores the arguments, makes up self-help addresses about being a nice little club together who just... We just get along and we raise our kids well and we, we, we don't have to really believe anything strongly. We just want to make sure everybody's happy and growing and doing a good job at work. But no theology often walks blindly into danger or sits passively by and misses the glory of God in the Christian life because they don't know how to give God thanks for the right things. We can't accept bad theology we can't give up and choose no theology. Instead, we have to be a people who have a strongly biblical theology, the faith that was once and for all time handed down to the saints. We have to cling to that faith. And, truth is, we're going to have to, whether it's inside our own church family, or whether it's connected to other church families, or whether it's around the world, we're going to have to fight for the, the protection and the preservation of that faith. Now, I can say to you with, with certainty, you will not defend the gospel if you don't know what it is. And you will not defend the gospel if you're not convinced of its truth and the fact that it's the only way. You will not defend the gospel if you don't understand that it, this is an eternal life or death issue. But if you get those things, you will. So ask yourself here this morning, do I genuinely believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe, for example, that there's only one way to God? And that way is through the sacrifice of the Son of God. Do you believe that people without faith in Jesus Christ are destined for hell for eternity? Do you buy that? Because if so, you will fight for the gospel. Verse 3 sets the stage for the book of Jude. And today, we're going to read on and we're going to go pretty fast. And we're going to make it through verse 19, Lord willing. And we're going to talk about why it is we fight for the faith. So I'm going to give you several reasons why we fight for the faith. So why fight for the faith? Point number two, fight for the faith because of dangerous deceivers. Fight for the faith because of dangerous deceivers. All the rest of these are fight for the faith because type points. Verse four, for 
Certain people have, look at this, crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude says, in, in the church he's writing to, there are ungodly people who have crept in unnoticed. They have snuck, sneaked, I'm not sure which one it should be. What do you guys think? Are you going to vote for sneaked or snuck? Snuck? How many say sneaked? Okay, there's at least a sneaked and a snuck. Well, these people crept in and, and they are ungodly because they've gotten in amongst the believers and the Bible says they are condemned. They, are, they were marked out for condemnation when? Long beforehand. Does that tell you something about the sovereignty of God, by the way? The idea here is that God knew that these people would be condemned long before now, long before they were born, long before they managed to sneak in and pretend they were part of the church, and they do not catch God by surprise. And Jude warns the church about these evil men because they're in and they're under the radar of a lot of people in the church, but they're not Christians they're sitting in our chairs, they're, they're singing our songs, they're attending our classes, whether it's here again or somebody else, somewhere else. I'm not poking at any of y'all. But there, there's something about these folks that says they're ungodly people infiltrating the church. And what is it they do? Two things in verse 4. First, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Can you fathom that? That word sensuality is immoral behavior, especially uh, of a sexual nature. It could be licentiousness. You could translate it that way. The idea is somebody saying, and, and Father, you tell me if this sounds familiar to you if you've been reading the, the web or watching the news. This is pretty much somebody saying, hey, since God is gracious and loving, I have a license to live however I want. Since God is gracious and loving, I can do anything I want with my body because it's mine and God loves me just the way I am. You ever hear anybody talk like that? This is especially true in modern conversations about marriage and sexuality, isn't it? Well, back in the first century when Jude wrote this, there were a lot of groups that taught that the deeds done in the flesh did not matter. They're like the Gnostics. Now, when Jude wrote, Gnosticism was not huge yet. Gnosticism is more of a first century, second, late first century, early second century thing than, you know, really the 60, 70, 80 time frame. Gnosticism was just being hinted at. But the Gnostics and people who were their precursors taught that you could do anything you want with your body because your body is not the spiritual part of you and only the spiritual stuff counts. So, see, as long as it's not my spirit doing it, as only, it's only my body doing it, then I can do anything I want with it. By the way, think of how you would eat if that were true. Just saying. Um, by the way, you think you guys applauded when Abigail uh, regained, you know, doubled her birth weight. I would double my weight right now if I was just my body didn't count. But this is a problem, isn't it? That, that there's something to be said about people who say, I can do anything I want. Because God's gracious. And you can imagine a group like that from the first century, sneaking into the church and convincing other people that because God is gracious, you can do anything you want with your body. Since it's not the spiritual part of you, don't worry about it. It's just physical. God saved your soul, not your physical parts. And in the modern church, there are people that, that still try to turn the grace of God into license to sin. There are lots of churches out there, and you know them, that will not call sinful behavior sinful. They say that they're doing it out of love. They say that they're doing it out of love for the sinners especially. But what they're doing is forsaking the grace of God. And they're making the grace of God into a license to do wrong. And again, going back to the things that we've seen, churches that are affirming, uh, again, whether it's homosexuality or some other uh, aberrant form of sexuality that, that says that sex is not for inside a marriage between a man and a woman, they use often when, they, when churches get on this bandwagon, they say it's about love. They say it's about mercy and kindness, but in reality they're affirming an activity that God calls sinful and deadly. 
Because you know what? When we rebel against God, and we, when we rebel against God's design for who we are, against male and female itself, that's not safe. And it's not loving to tell somebody they can do that. Let's remember, God is loving and God is gracious and all of us are sinners. But God is also holy and righteous and just and God will not tolerate sin and He will not accept the misuse of His grace as a license for immorality. And so for a supposed Christian to approve of sinful behavior is not loving to the person they're approving. It's deceptive, it's tricking, it's deadly. Jude says we have to fight for the faith because there are those who twist God's grace into freedom for sin. But the the ungodly people in Jude do one other thing. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Again, first century cults, later Gnostics, deny Jesus. The Gnostics, again, they were really a mess for the early church. They said Jesus wasn't really God. They said Jesus was a lower emanation, a demigod, a sub-god, a mini-god. They said Jesus was a creation of the big God. Guys, that teaching is false. That teaching is deadly. And by the way, that teaching is also all around us. We, we live among different cults that would say that Jesus is something less than genuine Savior, genuine God. But the Bible is very clear. Jesus is God the Son. He is fully God who took on a human life. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. His death was a sacrifice which paid the penalty for the sins of everyone who would come to God for forgiveness. And Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive now. And he demonstrates that his work is done, that the price is paid, and there is life and that there's hope after death. That's what Jesus has done. That's what the gospel is. Anyone comes to Jesus, there is salvation and forgiveness. So today, like in Jude's day, we've got people that deny Jesus. There's a lot of modern theologians that say that Jesus' death was just a picture. They say that Jesus just, when he died on the cross, it shows how ugly sin is, but it didn't actually buy anything. Some people say, God's really not going to punish anybody for sin, that, 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 that a loving God would never do that. And so the cross is God's expression of how far He's willing to go to have you love Him. That's still out there too. But that stuff is false. It's not the story of the Bible. And Jude says we've got to fight against that. Other people do say that Jesus' death was a sacrifice for sin. But we need more than faith in Christ to be saved. This, as some of you know, was a sticking point in the Protestant Reformation, especially, right? We argue, we argue that salvation is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church back then argued, no. You also have to add human works. You have to add your participation in the sacraments if salvation is going to be true. But the Bible is clear that anybody who denies the complete sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, anyone who denies the necessity of that sacrifice to pay for our sins, anyone who denies the complete sufficiency of God's grace through faith in that salvation, is denying Christ. And one of the worst things about all of those theologies is that they're actually tempting. Have you ever thought about how tempting those are? It's, it's tempting to read so much love into God that you ignore justice. I mean, do y'all really want to be the people that the world says are closed-minded bigots akin to old 1950s racists? Because that is what they're going to call us. Right? When we don't go with them, and approve of things that destroy human lives. They think we're unloving. And we look at, we look unloving. Because they can't see the eternal perspective that we're trying to have because we're trying to honor God and rescue souls. It's, it's easy. It's our nature also to think that 
you've got to do something to buy your grace. I mean, isn't it human nature to say, all right, tell me the steps I have to take, the tasks I have to perform to be good with God. Most of us thought that way early in our lives. We have a desire to do something to earn it. But God says salvation is by grace, through faith, and not a result of works. And Jude calls the church to fight for the one true faith because there are sneaky people, ungodly people, even among the church, even around the church, even infiltrating the church, who would destroy the faith what we have to do is we have to know the true gospel. We have to believe that it's vital and we have to fight against false teaching. Now let's go on to see more reasons why we fight against those who would introduce false doctrines. These will go faster. Third point, if you're writing some, fight for the faith because of the past judgments of God. Watch the past judgments here. Jude 5 or 5 through 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt... Stop here for a second, by the way. Who did the Bible just say saved people out of Egypt? Now, if I asked you, before you walked in here and heard that, who saved the Israelites out of Egypt, what word would you have used? Would you have said Jesus or would you have said something else? You would have said... God did, right? Who was, the, who was in the pillar of cloud and fire? That's God. That's Yahweh. That's the Lord. What does Jude do when he tells us that Jesus saved people out of Egypt? He tells us Jesus is God. It's right there. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here we go. Jude gives us another three. Here are three examples for the people. Three examples that the first century church, the first century Jewish Christian especially, would have had completely in their head. All of them show you how did God pour out His wrath on people who turned from Him or who engaged in gross immorality. And the point is this. If God judged these people, if God judged these people, He whether it's the unbelieving Israelites, whether it's fallen angels, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, God will also judge those who mislead the church and pervert the gospel. That's all you need to know from this. Fourth point. Fight for the faith because there are those who arrogantly speak out to destroy it. 8 through 11. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So here we go. Judah's going to give us more examples that the people would have known. He calls the false teachers arrogant. They're men who speak up against things they don't understand. By the way, I think it's interesting. And, and the, the turn of a phrase is so pithy. Judah's pithy. He says, you know what? They speak out and they spew venom against stuff they don't understand. And they destroy what they do understand because they understand it like unreasoning animals. That's, that's pretty sharp there, Mr. Jude. Or as again, as Ed would have said, hey, Jude. Um, you had to do it at least once, right? Plus, it makes me know if you're still awake. 
have you ever seen anybody, by the way, scream and yell against something that if they understood it, it would be good for them, but they hate it because they don't get it? But then they're destroyed by what they think they know? That's the world we live in right now, y'all. And he alludes to this weird story about the angel Michael. It's an old Jewish legend called the Assumption of Moses. Michael, in that story, argues with the devil over the body of Moses. Because you remember, Moses went up on a mountain and died. And nobody, you know, God buries him. So the story is, the legend is, that the devil and Michael got into a big fight about this. And it's not part of Holy Scripture. It's not an inspired story. But it's a great example, right? Because Jude is saying, hey, speak out. There's people who speak out against the things of God. And they're more disrespectful, the people who speak out against the things of God. They're more disrespectful than the archangel Michael was willing to be towards Satan himself. And by the way, that's a bad testimony. If somebody says, you are more disrespectful than an angel would be to the devil, that's probably not good on your part, right? Now, real quick, and I'm taking a moment away from my notes. What do you do with this? Or later this book's going to quote the, the book of Enoch. What do you do when a New Testament book of the Bible quotes something that we don't think is actually inspired scripture? Do we have to bring the assumption of Moses and the book of Enoch into the canon of Scripture and call it authoritative text just because he's, he said something about it here? Of course not. Why not? Well, imagine I were standing up here and talking about self-sacrifice. And I say, um, man, that person laid down his life to rescue his friends. It was, it was like when Obi-Wan Kenobi got Darth Vader's attention. To, to give Luke time to get off the Death Star. If I say that, do you think that I believe that Obi-Wan Kenobi was a real person? Or do you pretty much know I'm quoting a sci-fi movie? Or for those of you who don't get it, you know, man, he, he, those are great friends. He, he really sacrificed for his friends like when Sam carried Frodo up the mountain. You know, again, either you get it or you don't, but you don't think I mean it's Bible, do you? I might need to quote some other type of movie for you guys, depending on who you are, you know. He had perseverance, like, you know, he learned his lesson, like when Rocky realized he had to really train to fight Mr. T in Rocky Three. Is that better for some of y'all, by the way? Did that, did that help? Okay. But, again, you don't think I really believe in Rocky, right? You just know that I'm citing a commonly known story to illustrate a point. That's exactly what Jude's doing here. So don't let anybody tell you we should include the book of Enoch or the assumption of Moses just because Jude quotes them. Fair enough? Okay, tangent over. In verse 11, we see that these men are heading toward destruction by following the lustful leadings of their flesh. Remember, they changed the grace of God and the sensuality. They said, man, God will let us do anything we want. Let's just all go do it together. And Jude says these kind of people are headed for destruction. They're going to be destroyed like three people. Jude loves threes, right? Who? Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Those are three Old Testament men who were judged by God and came to really bad ends. You want to look them up later? That's great. But not right now. Point number five. Fight for the faith. Why? Because there are dangerous disguised deceivers. It's kind of like the other point, but it just sounds good. 12 and 13. These folks are blemishes on your love feast as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. By the way, have you noticed Jude's just not even nice to these people? He uses five illustrations for these evil men. He says they are like blemishes. Any of y'all got any blemishes? You know what they are then, right? How many of you like blemishes? Not so much. Right? I mean, it's, it's a spot that's just not right. He says they're like clouds with no rain. Man, they look promising. They look normal. They look full. They are deceptive and empty. They're like fruitless trees. They're dead. They're uprooted. They should be bringing good, but they're bringing nothing. 
These men are like waves of the sea. They splash about with no shame. They corrupt people around them like waves frothing and foaming. These people spread shameful thoughts and evil practices around everywhere they go. And they're like wandering stars. They're unstable. They're misleading. You can't navigate a ship safely if the stars aren't stable back then, right? And Jude says these people have darkness reserved for them. They are dangerous. They're hard to spot. They're misleading. They're deceptive. And y'all, they are destined to be destroyed. And we have to uphold the true gospel against people like that. Sixth point. Fight for the faith because of the coming judgment of God. Fight for, fight for the faith because judgment's coming. 14 to 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Here we go again, non-canonical book, the book of First Enoch. In the citation, he predicts that the judgment of God is going to fall on the people who are speaking out arrogantly against the truth. They are grumblers, they're malcontents, they're fault finders, they cause issues, they give in to their own lusts, they're arrogant, they, they're bold, they're brash, they say, I know what's right and you don't, y'all better follow me. They are brash, they're also flatterers. They're, they're tricky. They are dangerous deceivers destined for destruction, for those of you who like alliteration. And there is much about this kind of person you can picture. Because this kind of person, what do they do in the church? They form their own little cliques, don't they? They, they, they gather people together and they use gossip and they use influence and they use politics to shape things their way. And they, like a friend of mine mentioned to me this morning, they, they like to appeal to the wealthy person in the congregation and use that wealthy person's influence to shape things the way they want it to be. They bully their way into power. And the Bible says, watch out for people like that and don't you dare be like them. Seventh point, last point. Fight for the faith because smooth-tongued mockers would lead you astray. 17 to 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So finally Jude quotes the apostles themselves. He's been using illustrations up until now, and now he's quoting the guys that wrote Scripture. He says they have predicted, and Jude knows Peter predicted this, he knows Paul predicted this. People are coming one day, people who mock the truth, people who follow after their own lusts, these men cause divisions. It makes sense they would. Because if they speak out against the gospel, if they mock the truth of God, there has to be division against them. There has to be. By the way, you do understand that divisions do have to happen, right? If, if I believe something strongly this way about the gospel, and somebody else believes something strongly this way about the gospel, and those two are opposite issues... We're going to be divided. You know why? Because I think I'm right. Does that sound arrogant, by the way? Well, here's the thing. If I thought I was wrong, I would change. I promise you, if someone convinces me that I'm wrong about something in theology, I'll go. But it better be biblical. And so you see, there have to be divisions, and there's nothing wrong with believing you're right and somebody else is wrong. Don't be a jerk about it. But there have to be divisions that say, look, I believe salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. You believe that salvation is by grace plus human works in the sacraments. 
We cannot be united until one of those changes. Or, I believe that Jesus is God in flesh and you believe that he is a sub-God. We cannot be together until something changes. Or I believe that my salvation is by God's grace alone through faith and that God worked it all out and deserves all the credit from beginning to end. And you believe that you made a choice that brought about your own salvation. And I can love you and I can respect you and I can believe that you're saved, but we're going to be divided. And on and on we could go, right? The sad thing here is that many people, these these deceivers, convince many in the church to follow them. They're worldly-minded They follow the leading of unsaved and ungodly people. They think like the world, not like the people of God. They're devoid of the Spirit, which means they're not even really believers to begin with in lots of cases. They're just present in the church and they do harm. Isn't Jude a pleasant book so far? All of these last sections go to say this. There are people among the church of God today who use the grace of God as a license for sin. They accept sin, they excuse sin, they embrace sin, and they refuse to root sin out. And by that, they deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They promote false doctrines, they speak out against the true gospel, they deceive honest people, they bring destruction on people around them. God has known that they are coming for a long time, and God has planned to judge them for just as long. And these false teachers, people that do this, God says they will be destroyed, they will be judged like, well, they're going to be judged like the unbelieving Israelites that that didn't believe in God even though He led them out of Egypt. They're going to be judged like fallen angels. They're going to be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to be judged like Cain, like Balaam, like Korah. These are all people that that Jude says they're like. And you don't want to have anything to do with them. And because these kinds of people can make their way into the church, because they're here causing problems, we have to fight for the faith. Can I remind you guys... None of us like to fight. And if you do like to fight, you've probably got a problem. In fact, you've probably got a lot of arrogance and a lot of, a lot of just pride-filled attitude because you like to win and you like to squish people. Please don't ever be those people. Don't ever like fighting. But love the God you fight for. Right? I don't want to fight. But we will. How do you do this? And I'm just going to tell you, this means you better know the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, you won't know when somebody's messing it up. Right? And, and, and guys, again, if you, don't, if you don't know the gospel and you can't fight for the gospel, how in the world are you going to protect yourself, your family, your friends, or the lost person down the street who's hearing a false gospel? You've got to be willing to fight for the sake of human souls and for the glory of God. You've got to know the gospel You've got to believe that it matters. You've got to believe that this is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And you, Christians, have to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. That's what Jude is saying. And there's something else we've got to remember. And Jude points this out. You ready? God is in control. Jude never lets go of that. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you're not the one that has to win the fight? God is not going to lose. The genuine gospel is glorious. And if we're willing to trust God and follow the word of God, God will keep us. God will preserve us even through the hardest of times. And God's gospel will prevail. And it's always possible. I don't know who all's made their way into the room because I don't see all you guys. But it's possible that you're here and you're not really connected to the faith. And all this talk about fighting for the faith may seem like such a turnoff. Doesn't it sound like a downer and a turnoff, y'all? Just be honest. It stinks. But listen to me. Listen to me. Remember, anything worth living for 
is worth fighting for. And what we're talking about here today is the only truth that can save your soul forever. And so I urge you not to buy into anything other than the true story that Jesus, God's Son, is your and my only hope. Everybody who turns from their sins and entrusts their souls to Jesus is rescued by Jesus forever. And if you would like to be the beloved of God, the kept of God forever in the grace of God, turn to Jesus and then join us as we contend for the faith. And here's the trick, y'all. It's not all fighting all the time. It's not all fussing with these people that would mess with the faith all the time. The beauty is, as we see the glory of God, we see the magnificence for which we were created, we see the one thing that can satisfy our souls forever and we get ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate happiness forever. And it's worth every last conflict and every last struggle we go through. So join us together and let us as the people of God contend for the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints for the sake of the glory of God. Would you bow with me and pray please? Lord, again we find ourselves here and again we don't know how to do even all the things you've called us to do. But here's what I ask, God. Let us love the gospel. Let us trust your word. Let us fight for the faith. Let us not be deceived. And strengthen us for the battle. And give us joy in your glory. And God, if anybody here doesn't know you, Again, it's hard. It's hard to know that I can be in a room where someone might not know you and to have to go into the hard stuff of the faith like this. But help those even who may not yet know you to fully trust in you for your glory, for the salvation of their soul. And make us a church that fights for the faith with all we got. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song that will help us to respond and to close. If I can help you, if you want to talk about this or talk about the faith, please don't hesitate. Come to me, talk to me, and we will uh, find ways to help you take the next steps that God might call you to. And there may be next steps you need to go to. Maybe you are a believer but have never been baptized. Maybe you're here but you've never become a believer. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church. I'm open to have any conversation that would help you in the next steps in your faith. But let's sing together now to the glory of God.